title of our series through First and Second Corinthians is God's plan for a healthy church. In particular, as we've come into chapter 10 and 11, we've come into conduct in the church, and specifically for today, fellowship and the Lord's table. There's some unwritten and kind of written in the background rules for standard military instruction. I was reading through a bunch of them the other day, and I was... Because we're in instructions from Paul, I thought it'd be funny to give them uh, some of them to you. Those of you who are in the military can shed a lot of light on these and whether or not they're true or not. Number one, aim towards the enemy. That's actually instructions printed on a U.S. rocket launcher, aim it towards the enemy. Second instruction, which actually found in the U.S. field manual, when the pin is pulled, Mr. Grenade is no longer our friend. Whoever said the pen is mightier than the sword obviously never encountered automatic weapons. Don't ever be first, don't ever be last, and don't ever volunteer to do anything. If your attack is going too well, you're walking into an ambush. If you find yourself in a fair fight, you didn't plan your mission properly. Don't draw fire. It irritates the people who are around you. No combat-ready unit has ever passed inspection. Any ship can be a minesweeper once. If the enemy is in range, so are you. Tracers work both ways. Friendly fire isn't friendly. Five-second fuses last three seconds. Never share a foxhole with anyone braver than you are. The problem with taking the easy way out is that the enemy has already mined it. Incoming fire has the right-of-way. The quartermaster has only two sizes, too big and too small. If you can see the enemy, he can see you. And finally, never tell the platoon sergeant you have nothing to do. Of course, some of these are tongue-in-cheek, and and if you've been in the military, you can probably shed a lot of light on those standard instructions. But we're taking a look at some instructions from the Apostle Paul given to the church in Corinth. I'd like to read our passage together. Lord willing, we'll finish this passage up today. If you've missed the first two-thirds of this instruction, you can find this online and you can catch up. But let's read, starting in verse 17. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read all the way through verse 34. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Verse 19, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, verse 21, each of you takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Verse 22, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread Verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. 
Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, verse 33, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you'll not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Let's stop right there. If you're new with us today, we've been working our way verse by verse through 1 Corinthians 11. And after taking in uh, the setting of the passage, which has to do with fellowship and breaking bread together as the church comes together, we looked at the sin that was present during these fellowships times, the reason why Paul had to bring these things to their attention as he is working his way through these issues with the church. And we saw that division and self-centeredness were destroying the opportunities for cultivating relationships and burden-bearing, and discipleship, and need-meeting that the Lord designed into the makeup of a believer and designed to be fulfilled inside the fellowship and the breaking of bread together that was to occur. And those were the things that the church continued in, as we saw in Acts chapter 2. So even though Paul had given the church these instructions before, they're in need of them again. So Paul is going to go back to the basics, really give basic instruction for them to help them understand the reason for the time together around the table of the Lord, the reason for the fellowship, and the way it should be conducted. And so he's going to reestablish the standard, really, that governs the love feast and its transition into the Lord's table. And look at the four verses there, if you, were, if you would, starting in verse 23. We'll just do a little quick review that will set the stage for our finishing up of this passage. Paul says, I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you. Now, when we think about Paul going back to basics here, and then when he says this, Paul wants them to understand, as we saw last time, these things are not his own ideas of how things should go. So this is not Paul's personal preference, and this is what I want you to do, or someone else's personal preference, perhaps one of the disciples. It's not a recollection, something of they remembered, if you will. This is from Jesus himself. Paul says, what I'm about to tell you, I was told by the Lord. We took looked at all that background last time about perhaps where that occurred. Now, as we said, it's interesting to point out as we read this whole passage that this is the earliest account of the actual practice of the Lord's table in the early church. We know it was instituted by the Lord when he fulfilled the Passover, his instructions were clear that the church was to do it, but here we see the actual practice, marred, of course, by division and self-centeredness, but being celebrated nevertheless. And so that's important. As we think about the timing of Paul's writing, this is probably the first official understanding of what was supposed to be going on and what was actually going on in the church. And when Paul says, I received, I also delivered, those are verbs that really are procedural terms for handing over traditions. Paul says, I received this from the Lord. Both of the verbs are aorist, active, indicative. They have occurred at a point. They're the reality of the present. And so Paul says, uh, very importantly, I'm going to get back to basics. And when I do that, this is really a repeat. I'm going to tell you something I've already told you. When I spent 18 months with you, I'd already gone over this with you. I received it from the Lord. I'd already delivered this to you. I'm going to go back over it again. Then he says this. Uh, that the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he said, it took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, just pause right there. Paul just points out that uh, that even in this fulfillment of the Passover, in the middle of, the, of the, the precursor to the love feast, the truth was that there was an individual wrecking havoc in the fellowship. For, so right from the beginning, uh, in the middle of the dinner, there's someone who's betraying the Savior. It just repeats what Jesus told him, as we saw. 
Now, it's important to remember, as he gives this, it's not just uh, Jesus, his actions and his words were not only to show, this is very important, not only to show that his body would be broken like the bread and, and in his hand, and that his blood would be poured out like the wine in the cup, to atone for the sin of all mankind, establish a new covenant, not of law, but of grace. Not only to show that. It was to show or demonstrate that he was the fulfillment of the sacrificial lamb. It certainly drew all that together. But it wasn't just for that. The Passover was a memorial to redemption. And just like the Passover was a memorial to redemption, so was this uh, Last Supper of the Lord, where he transitioned this into the time around the Lord's table. It was replaced by this time where the Lord is with his disciples, where the sins of the world and the wrath of God was placed on Jesus, and the great redemptive plan of God was fulfilled. So as the Jews look back to redemption, their great uh, idea of understanding of redemption was the deliverance from Israel, and Christ supplanted that, he fulfilled it, if you will, in his own self, and said, now you looked back there, but now you'll look here at the cross. And it appears that that is the Lord's point, and of course Paul's point, that the emphasis here is on remembering together. The great redemptive plan of God was fulfilled, and Jesus told him to celebrate this, and so doing, remember him. And then Paul reiterates Jesus' words, and they're to come together to remember when he says, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, you know, why did God become incarnate? For himself? No, for you. Why did Jesus come into the world and suffer what he suffered? For you. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. His body, which is for you. To pour out a new covenant for you. Took away the guilt and punishment for sin. His selfless act. Uh, he completed redemption for all who would believe. And the church is called to remember that together. Remember that he walked around the room before the meal and washed their feet. Remember he took the form of a servant. To remember that he gave up his rights, his position. To remember he made himself obedient unto death. We saw all of that. Jesus said, this is my body for you. And all that is to be called to their remembrance. Not just what the sacrifice meant, but that it was to be remembered together as a church. And so we saw, thirdly, coming together and taking the elements are important because they're symbols that help you remember what Christ endured for you. Verse 24 says, when you eat the broken bread, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And we saw that when he says, remember, uh, that Greek noun is very important because it's not the understanding, uh, the meaning that perhaps we have today as they would have in the first century. It means to weigh well and consider. Because it's possible to come to the Lord's table, it's possible to come into fellowship together with the church and have your, have your mind very far away and not be remembering at all what the Lord has done. To remember in the way that scripture prescribes that a birthday would be to call to memory and consider all it means to have that person in your life. That would be to remember. The ancient way to understand that I think is the way to understand it. Remembering a, uh, an anniversary would be to recall the courtship and the wedding and the years together to remember them and express them. That's the remembrance that, that uh, we should understand. Amnesis, a very important word. Way well consider. Bring the magnitude of your salvation into the now. And it's going to impact how you think. It's going to impact what you do, how you express yourself. Is it, you know, it's not just, oh yeah, I remember, I remember, you know, the cross 2,000 years ago. I remember that. Uh, I remember, I'm remembering that, Lord. It's, it's to, it's to reach back there into that event, to pull it up to the present. I'm living in the conscience presence of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished and all that he said and letting those thoughts permeate my mind and my soul and my heart with the reality of who Christ was. See, this is Paul resetting it, stating the standard. This is why you're coming together, he said. You've kind of messed the whole thing up, he said, and this is not what it's all about. So let's go back to what the thing centers around. 
You can't come to... Here's the thing. If we think about the standard Paul's calling us, the church back to, it's really as a curative, isn't it? You can't come uh, to the table, in other words, with, to the, of the Lord, with, with selfishness, you know, and, uh, and faction and disunity, because Jesus is saying, you know, do this. And when you do this, would you call me into your conscious mind? I mean, think about what I've done, not just my dying for you, but my living for you, the commands I gave you, the examples I left you to follow, my whole incarnation. Would you commune with that? In your mind. After all, it was for you. Make that the reality as you remember all this. So that's why he sets the standard and says, listen, this is what you have to go back to. And then Paul reminds him of one more thing as he reestablishes the standard. He says, verse 20, uh, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, very important Greek verb, present active indicative, present reality, that is, that you're a messenger of, messenger of, a proclaimer of the gospel, that's the Lord's death until he comes. Christ died according to the scripture, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scripture. So not only are we to understand that the sacrifice was for us, but to bring it to our conscious mind and consider it and weigh it, and all that he did, and all that he said, and all that he modeled for us, and as we partake of it, here it is, beloved, as we partake of it, we renew the belief that incorporated the payment to our account and refresh our covenant and our commitment with him. And Paul's point is this, that when we do that correctly, we proclaim the correct gospel. And we hope for his anticipated return because he's coming back. That's what Paul says, so you better pay attention. Because we can't proclaim the correct gospel that transforms men and women when we're actively participating in disunity and selfishness. You're not giving the correct gospel out, see. This is a special place and a special message. And when you come to it, Paul says you better come with a right heart attitude. And that's a segue then into verses 27 through 32. And with that, he's going to give the church the consequences of coming to the table in an unworthy manner. So his reminder of the traditions and the resetting of the standard, that's no empty reminder and that's no empty reset. He's giving them these resets and this reminder because this is important. There's going to be some consequences if they don't follow it. Now look at verse 27. Therefore, Paul says, or in light of what I just said, in light of the sin situation you're bringing into the love feast and bringing to the Lord's table, in light of what you now know, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So we're going to see now in the next few verses severe discipline and spiritual checkup. And they're going to go back and forth. The discipline issue and the checkup issue. And the things that can, can happen and the one that is to be. So you can have some discipline if you don't take care of this checkup. So, part of the fellowship time they share, and we're going to go as far as we can uh, in all of this, but these two disciplines, discipline and self-examination, go back and forth, and we just identify them as they come up. Okay, so Paul turns his attention back to this unacceptable behavior of the Corinthian church as they come into this fellowship time, and this breaking of bread together, and then they enter into the Lord's table. Now look at verse 27. Paul cautions then the readers concerning the consequences of their actions. He's given them this reset. He says, listen, this is not to be. I've shown the setting. I've given you the sin that's there. And then here, here's the standard that's supposed to be there. This is what you're centering around. It's what you're supposed to remember. So in light of uh, Christ's sacrifice, all that he's done for you, everything he laid out for you, can you come into the table that way? The Lord's table. It's not happening. What's happening is you're just taking care of yourself. Paul says that's not to be. So he's going to turn his, his attention then to discipline and to the spiritual checkup. Now here's the thing. To eat the bread, to drink of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is, 
the circumstances of schism, that's the circumstances of division, that's discord, that's greed, that's selfishness, insensitivity, as the Corinthian church had done. So you're taking the cup of the Lord, and this is the situation. They're coming in an unworthy manner with all the sin in their life and all the, the divisiveness and discord and whatever. You come in there and do that. Paul says, if you're coming into this time with that in your life, that's therefore to be, and there's no other way you can come away from this, from this without this understanding, I don't think. It's therefore to be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That's a pretty serious thing, wouldn't you say? That's his death, because it was precisely those attitudes and those like them that brought about the death of Christ to begin with. So to repeat them on the occasion of the meal at which the death is recalled is to share the sins of those who crucified the Lord. That's a very serious infraction. It doesn't mean that you lose your salvation. It doesn't jeopardize your eternal security. But coming to the table that way destroys the unity of the church for which Christ died. And it destroys the communion the believer is coming to the table seeking. And the Lord is very concerned about that. Now, verse 28 really gives us the first principle of a spiritual checkup because this infraction is so serious. Look there if you would with me. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. Dokimazeto, that's a Greek verb, present active imperative. If there's ever a command that Paul says you must do, it's in that understanding, present active imperative. Paul says this is to be the case with you. Our first principle of spiritual checkup is this. Every, in every activity, in every thought, every action, every attitude, participating in fellowship with other believers, there must be a careful accounting, if you will, a weighing, a testing, a scrutiny of examination of your own self before you come to the table. It kind of changes the whole process, doesn't it? As you come to the table, there's got to be this examination. Yes, you're forgiven every sin. Yes, if you come to Christ, he will forgive you. No sin will send a believer to hell. But that doesn't mean, Paul says, that you can come to the table of communion with a continual attitude of selfishness or faction or pride or backbiting or self-centeredness. Paul says, because when you bring those things unexamined, unconfessed, then you're going to bring judgment to yourself. And he's going to say that very categorically in just a minute. Because Paul would say, because only when you've passed the test are you ready to eat the bread and drink the cup. Corinthians have despised the church of God by coming to the table with an attitude of disfellowship. It's supposed to center around remembering together and they're, they're kind of messing that whole thing up and they fail to understand that this is no mere collection of people but the body of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see more of that. Paul's going to talk about that in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. It's a body of Christ that's come to partake in the symbols of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood as they seek communion with the living Jesus. Just so much dynamic going on there. This is the body of Christ seeking to share together in remembrance of the broken body of Christ. A very serious thing. And the individual elements are important here. And the Lord obviously puts very high value on being right with one another. For to eat unworthily in our relationships with each other, as some of them were doing, secures the displeasure of the Lord. That's it's the only way you can come away from that passage. And just as a footnote, Paul reminds them, this is what he received from Jesus, to eat the bread and drink the cup. Okay, So just, just say this, it remains the bread and the cup. Okay, it doesn't by transubstantiation become the body and blood of Jesus as we saw at the funeral yesterday. If you watch that on TV, you could see the priest's words as he gave uh, the Eucharist to the people who were coming. This was the body and the actual blood of Christ. Paul's very clear about this. This is bread and the cup, and this is what it remains. These are symbols that we look to as we think about what the Lord asks us to do in fellowship with one another and to celebrate our common salvation. Now, Paul refers to that then. So, 
that's how redemption was accomplished, just as those symbols. Now look at verse 29, if you would. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So Paul's just getting very categorical here. Okay, it's a one-to-one. The body of Christ is coming to the Christ table. And there they're partaking of the elements that remind them of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. So in order to have communion with him and with one another, they're going to come together to do this. But they're coming with schisms and they're coming with self-centeredness and they're coming with disunity. And if they come with those particular issues, unconfessed, unresolved, they participate. What did Paul say they were guilty of? The body and the blood of the Lord, sharing in the sins of those who crucified Christ. So participating in the sins of those who crucified Jesus. And Paul's very categorical here. So principle number two of discipline is this. Participating in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner will incur judgment. Paul's just not saying you can, you can be judged if you come in an unworthy manner. He's saying, listen, listen, if you come, if you eat and drink, you're going to eat and drink judgment to yourself if you don't judge the body rightly. And the word judgment is the Greek noun krima. It is, in this case, a judicial court term which indicates the punishment with which it's the penal judgment, if you will. There is judgment there. It's already there in place to be delivered. And I think it's safe to say that Paul doesn't say it may occur, may incur judgment. If you eat and drink, may, you may incur judgment to yourself. He doesn't say that. If it's a possibility sometime out in the future. But if you come and eat and drink with these particular unconfessed sins, that action then, that's participating in the elements of the Lord's table, will incur judgment. And to what extent will be discussed in just a moment. And this is the, really the follow-up statement from verse 28 where Paul says that a man or woman is to examine themselves. Because if you fail to do that, you're not bringing yourself under an examination and passing that test then. You're coming then in the manner. And Paul says, listen, if you eat and drink at that point, you eat and drink judgment to yourself. And then he says this. He says, if he does not judge the body rightly. And the literal idea here is to come to grips with your real self. That's where we can play the games, right? We can sit here at the table and we can not really come to grips with our real self. And really see, the idea is to see clearly what the body is doing. So principle number two is a spiritual checkup. You must correctly evaluate your own actions. Correctly evaluate your own actions. To hold up the holy standard, if you will, in front of yourself. It doesn't say judge the soul rightly, does it? The soul's already right. The new you is secure with Christ. And we've seen before, the body is where the trouble can be. That's the only part that's not ready yet for the kingdom. That's the only unglorified part, right? So we've seen this before. And, and here he appears to be speaking to the believer's actual body, where the decisions of sin are made and followed through, where you know thoughts are thought through and then actions are followed up with. Now, what's going on in the human part of you? See? The body which is to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. That body. Because it's possible to examine yourself and not judge correctly, see? And that's why Paul puts that in there. If he does not judge the body rightly. Just to illustrate that principle for a moment. In Luke chapter 7, verse 40 through 43, you remember this perhaps. Jesus is eating at a Pharisee's house. A woman comes and she breaks a bottle of perfume and she anoints Jesus' feet and she washes them and wipes them with her hair and her tears are falling on his feet and... um, the Pharisee didn't provide any water to wash Jesus' feet, and he didn't greet Jesus with love or, or with a kiss or anoint him or anything. And so Jesus is going to draw that into question, and he's going to point this out. And, you know, the Pharisee, he knows the Pharisee's thoughts. The Pharisee's thinking if, if Jesus knew what kind of person this was, he'd never let them touch him and all that stuff. And just the whole uh, self-righteousness going on here and, and some uh, pretty wicked self-talk going on with the Pharisee. And Jesus is going to talk about it, and he says, 
Verse 40 says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replies, say it, teacher. Verse 41 says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Verse 42, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave the most. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. So Jesus asked the correct question and he judged, however grudgingly, correctly. So it's possible that he could have come down on the wrong side, right? He could have not got that correct. But Jesus said, you judged yourself correctly. You judged the idea here correctly. And he, of course, began making the connection to Simon's actions. Now, here's the thing. If you're going to judge the body rightly, you're going to have to ask the right questions, aren't you? Otherwise, it's just an exercise in futility. So if you have to judge the body rightly and the consequences of not doing it are so serious, and I think it's important to remember that we have to ask, we have to ask the right questions for this. In particular here, it's schism, which can come with differences of opinion and with gossip and with different priorities and hearsay and rumor and backbiting and slandering and strife and all that stuff that comes with differences of opinion and differences of thoughts about way things should be. You can come that way. And selfishness, which is also the other problem that Paul pointed out here, uh, self-centeredness, which should come with insensitivity and unkindness and disregard for others and greediness and all that kind of thing. So if those are the things that you bring to the table, and if you bring those in an unconfessed, unrepented state, then you eat and drink judgment to yourself because you're not judging the body rightly. So here's the question. If those are the things that are there, here's what you can ask, okay? And you can jot these down in your notes if you want. What do I think about others in the congregation? So as you're coming to the table, beloved, let's just make this real. This is what has to go on, okay? What do I think about others in this congregation? What do I say about them, both to myself and to other people? Who do I associate with? Is it those who share my criticism and faction? Is those, are those the people I gravitate to when I come in? Those people who share my dissatisfaction or whatever it is, okay? Do I regard anyone else as inferior to me? Do I place a high priority on fellowship and the breaking of bread? So let's put it in the other, the other way. Let's make it positive. Do I place a high priority on fellowship? Do I place a high priority on breaking of bread together? Because the Bible does. It gives us a few things the church continued in, and one of those was that, in fellowship and breaking of bread. Am I self-absorbed? Do I take care of myself before I take care of anyone else? Do I think about other people before myself? Do I regard those whose station in life is different than mine with a disregard of their feelings? I'm not as likely to gravitate towards people who are unlike me. Do I avoid those who I would consider less educated or those I would consider poor? So there's a lot of questions that have to be asked, and they have to be the right questions. If we're going to come in an examined state, passing the test so we can eat and drink, which is what the Lord wants us to do at the Lord's table, in the correct fellowship mind, remembering together all of his life, See, then those are some of the questions that are to be asked if we evaluate our condition correctly. And, of course, the questions have to be answered honestly and then corrected if there's things that fall into those categories. What do I say about others? Who do I associate with? Is it those who share my criticism? Do I place uh, regard uh, on anyone else as inferior? Do I have a high priority of a fellowship, breaking of bread? Am I self-absorbed? Do I take care of... Uh, myself before anyone else. All those things have to be in there, see? What do I think about other people? What do I say about them? Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 12.20, we're going to get to this in just a few weeks, 
He says this, he says, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and, and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. Now, Paul's not talking about himself there, okay? He's like, you might not like me when I come, because when I come, there still may be in place strife, jealousy, angry, tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. All the kinds of things that go around the very problem with the fellowship that he's addressing now. See, I may come and find that you haven't corrected any of these things, so I might not be what you hoped I would be, which is kind and, and uh, gentle with you. I may have to be difficult with you in order to straighten this out. So we see from our passage, these, these can't be left unconfessed or brought to the table because they bring judgment. In James 3.6, we see this illustration. And the tongue is a fire, the very word, uh, world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body, sets on fire the course of our life, and, and it is set on fire by hell. So the tongue causes all kinds of problems. And the tongue is, is at work inside of faction and, and differences of opinion and schism and rumor and backbiting and slander and strife. See? And James 5.9 says, Don't complain, brethren, against one another. Whatever. Or he's doing that. It don't complain against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The heart attitude of judging the body rightly, isn't it? You know, that heart attitude, as we, we think about those questions, then we, we begin to understand David's passages a lot better, don't we? In Psalm 90, verse 8. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And there, David goes on to say, higher than my head. So instead of just kind of judging ourselves as being righteous and everybody else or whatever they're thinking is not good, David says, listen, our iniquities are for you, higher than our head. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we want to determine where our attitude really is. The right questions. As Paul says, you come into the presence of the Lord for fellowship and breaking of the bread together. Make sure you're asking the correct questions. Judge the body rightly. Psalm 40, verse 12, For evils beyond number have surrounded me, David says. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They're so big, I can't even see how much. I can't even see past my own problems. See, they're more numerous than the of my head, and my heart has failed me. I'm just sick about them. That's the right attitude. You want to ask the right questions before you come to the table? That's a good start. See. Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. The Lord is pure. And he is the only one who can determine where your faults are. And some of them are pretty camouflaged. See? Mine too. Verse 13. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. The things specifically that the Lord has spelled out as not to do. Don't complain. I mean, over and over. Don't complain. You know, don't cause rumor. Don't sow discord. Don't have heresy. Don't backbite. Don't slander. Don't be selfish. Don't self-centered. Don't be insensitive, unkind. All those kind of things. Keep me from presumptuous sins. That's David's prayer. That's a great way to come to the table. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be accepted in your sight, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. See, that's the way to come. You're going to have to ask the right questions. If you're going to come to the table and not be found guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, then you have to have a spiritual reality checkup and judge your actions rightly and ask the right questions to do it. Now let's look at verse 30. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. What reason? Coming to the table, 
not asking the right questions, have this unconfessed issues going on here, this faction, the divisiveness, the, the schisms, the opinions, the hearsay, the rumor, the backbiting, whatever, the selfishness, the self-centeredness, to bring that to the table, okay? For this reason, unconfessed, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Let's break that down. Paul perhaps is explaining some pretty tragic circumstances forth in which he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number have died. And they must have been concerned about it. And so he must be referring to a report that has come to his ear, perhaps, from someone. Someone's come from the church. He understands from a letter that there's some sickness, there's some weakness, and it's kind of uh, on a very large scale. That word many is important to remember. Acts 11.21 is the same word, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number, that's the word many, who believe turned to the Lord. So it's not just a few people being affected by it. Obviously, there was a large number coming to the table with unconfessed sins that broke the fellowship and fractured the unity. And a large then number of them who were under judgment. So Paul says, for this reason, verse 30, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And Paul discerns for them the large numbers of people who were the adjectives weak, asthenes, that's lack of energy, that's lack of vigor, lack of feeling of well-being. There's a number of you who are there, he says, and a number who are sick, are hrostos, that is to be sick with some diagnosable illness, so something that we would know about or would be uh, obvious in its nature. So just weakness, which is really just a lack of feeling good, a lack of vigor, and then sickness. And then he says, a number sleep, and this is a word that's used in scripture of natural sleep, but it's also euphemistic of the death of a believer. And so it's applying in the second case here, a number sleep. That's how it's being used here. And that number, hikonos, adjective meaning a sufficient amount. So there's a large amount of people, many among you, he says, who are weak, many of you who are sick, and then a sufficient amount who have been judged and taken home to be with the Lord. So just like the people, just like Israel of old that we saw in 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, and many of them did not make it to the promised land because the Lord was displeased with them, and he just got tired of them complaining and just took them, that's exactly that segue that Paul's made all the way from there, all the way to here. We saw his connections back there. It's still here. We've looked at some of the other passages in Scripture that talk about this. Paul says, enough of you have been judged and taken home to be with the Lord that that should cause you some concern. And there's, there's a large number of you, he says, that are weak, and some of you are sick. A large number are sick. And so you should understand it like this. You're coming to the Lord's table, and you're coming with certain unconfessed sins, and I told you already, if you do this, you will receive judgment from the Lord. And you're destroying the unity of the church, and the Lord is judging you. So principle number three that we glean from Paul as it relates to discipline is, God is serious about self Casual with the Lord. We've kind of grown that way, I think. We've just kind of been uh, just pacified, if you will. And just think, oh, it's, everything is going to be fine. God's just going to forgive everything. He does forgive you. He has completely forgiven you. However, there is an interaction that's supposed to be going on on a regular basis. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Lord stands constantly making intercession for us. However, in our freedom in Christ, we're never, to, we're never going to be judged eternally for anything that we do. But we can place ourselves in positions where the Lord has to judge us because we're his children, see? Verse 31 says this, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged, see? So principle number three in our spiritual checkup is God expects discernment. 
He's serious about self-examination and he expects discernment as it comes to this self-examination. And in order to get yourself to the right place, you're going to have to ask the right questions and find out if what was true here in Corinth is true with you. Because if it is, then you place yourself in a position where God can judge and, and really has to act on his holiness. And so the idea I think Paul's trying to get across is we best not be flippant and superficial when it comes to the Lord's table. Believers have to ask the right questions and be able to discern the correct answers and then take the correct action, then, whatever it is, whether it's fixing it with else and fixing it with the Lord or whatever it is, those actions have to be taken. Let's see. Verse 32. Let me just move right through because I think you, you, you can see all the groundwork's laid. Okay? Verse 32 says this. But when we are judged... We are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And that's, and even though it's, it's a difficult thing to read, it's also very encouraging, isn't it? Principle number four is it relates to discipline. God reserves the right to deal with our sin any way he wishes because we are his. And I say that to you often. That is really the bedrock of our relationship with him, isn't it? Now we, we move into a relationship of love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And we understand that relationship with the Lord, the Lord wants from us. And as we deal with our children when they're little, we spank them and we correct them. And they, they fear that punishment initially. And then they grow into obedient children as you punish them correctly, as the scripture prescribes. And then in that, in that relationship with you, it changes from the spanking relationship and the discipline relationship to, to that love relationship. And they obey you because they love you and that you've taught them how to love you correctly. That's the same kind of relationship we're talking about here. See? God reserves the right to deal with our sin any way he wishes. We're his. And at the bedrock of our obedience to him is that foundational truth, isn't it? That he has the right to deal with your sin any way he wants. And that should strike some fear in your heart. But as you grow in your relationship with him and you begin to obey him as you should, that relationship just springs forth into love and adoration, doesn't it? And we don't think as much about the punishment because we're not thinking as much about the sin because we want to move away from that and into a mature relationship with the Lord. And part of these steps that we're looking at are how that occur. God's serious about self-evaluation and God expects discernment. And God deserves the right, he reserves the right to deal with our sin any way he wishes because we're his. See, And there's three important verbs here that perhaps counterintuitively give us some great hope. So when you read it, but when we are judged, we're disciplined, and we'll not be condemned. Let's just look at those real quickly. Judge, disciplined, condemned. They're all in the passive voice, which means that the subject is being acted on by an outside force. And we know who that is, don't we? That's the, the Lord, okay? He does the judging, he does the discipline, he does the right? That word judged, krinominoi, to, pro- to pronounce judgment. We looked at the noun form already. This is present, passive, participle, helping us understand what's going on. And we're disciplined. Pehidometha, to chastise with blows. To scourge in order to cause, to learn. It's the act of punishment, if you will, present, passive, indicative. That's what is actually going on when it's actually happening, see, when we're judged, and this just helps us understand the discipline and the condemnation, when we're judged, this dealing with an individual with blood, the chastisement that's supposed to occur, and then that word condemned, katakrino, eris, passive, subjunctive, may be true, see, but not necessarily true now, because of its tense voice and mood, it's indicating a future judgment. So here's the idea. 
when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord. So when that sentence is passed out, that we already know is there, if we come to the table in an unworthy manner, when the actual spanking is going on, if, to use childlike terms, if you will, that proves that the future day of condemnation is not going to be true for you. That's the understanding. See, If there's this future day of condemnation out there, and if that judgment wasn't occurring with you now, with the Lord bringing the blows to you, then there would be this future date of condemnation with the world, see. If you find yourself enduring a judgment from the Lord, in particular here, weakness, illness, perhaps death, as it relates to the fellowship in the Lord's table, it could be that the Lord, in this act of discipline, the actual chastening, whatever it is, is trying to teach you. That's it. In this case, Paul wanted the Corinthian church to know that this was a lesson from the Lord and a hard one at that but not as hard as being condemned along with the world. See, That'll also be a lesson. But that'll be one that never ends. See, And it has to do with being condemned along with the world, the future sentence that's going to be passed down on all the unredeemed. See, Paul wants them to know that discipline now means they belong to him. They are his sons. They are his daughters, you and I, sons and daughters. There's a big difference between God's sentence on his children for correction and God's sentence on the world. And for that, we can be very grateful. See, So even in the midst of discipline that the Lord brings on our life, we can be grateful because he wants us to be holy. That's where his blessing is found. That's where authentic testimony is found. That's where fruitful ministry is found. See, And so God can bring this on us. He can bring it on the church. And Paul certainly said it was occurring in Corinth because of the way they were coming to the table. And I think as we're going to wrap up, maybe we can see Hebrews 12, 6 through 13. is a very effective way to illustrate this in another part of Scripture. Just listen to this. and I know it will resonate with you. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share with his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore... Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Isn't that amazing? It gives the actual reality of the believer's life, which Paul is illustrating here in in Corinthians, and he's telling them what the symptoms of those judgments are. They even can discern because of the way they're coming to the table, which we can't always discern that, can we? And just as a footnote, it's not always sickness and weakness and death are not always as as a result of sin. It can be a result of a physical fail, uh, frailty of, of, a, of a corrupt world and all the things that are connected with that and just the death that comes as a result of old age and the curse. But Paul is really connecting it for them in a way that we cannot always see. Paul says, listen, there are a lot of you who are weak and there are a lot of you who are sick and, and a goodly number who have died. And it's as a result of coming to the table in this way. But even in that issue, Hebrews says, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Listen, no... It seems joyous for the moment, but sorrowful. 
But when you're trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's what the Lord wants. Through Paul, he wants the Corinthian church to change the way they're going to the table and, and the church at large to change the way they deal with each other. And as I said, you know, not all weakness, not all sickness, not all death can be attributed to personal sin. But honestly, I'll be honest with you. The problem in the modern church might not be that we are attributing most weakness, sickness, and death as judgment from the Lord. But the problem might be actually the opposite, that we aren't attributing any of it to God's judgment and discipline. We're missing it completely, see. I think that's more the danger in the modern church. We don't see any of it as God being God disciplining instead of seeing everything as God disciplining. I think there's a great balance to be struck there. So let's finish up our passage, verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together, let's talk about what goes on in the church. Again, this is what goes on when they meet, okay? It's not just, uh, you know, general instruction and, you know, academic, you know, hey, if you come together, you know, when you come together, wait for one another. Verse 34, if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Now, stop right there. The Apostle Paul brings his readers back to the situation which provoked the criticism to begin with. Some of the sternest, harshest criticism Paul brings to any church in the New Testament model that we see here in the New, in, uh, in the New Testament. It, it must seem obvious to them by now that the way they've been acting towards one another is unacceptable. He doesn't mention the schisms again between them. He doesn't mention selfishness and all the things that are connected to that. He doesn't go through all that sin again. Paul's not arguing that the members stop eating a meal together before the Lord's table. He doesn't, Don't do that because you're messing that up too. You're coming out of that meal serving yourself and not each other, not waiting for anybody. Just eating your own food and going into the Lord's table and uh, the poor come late and all they have is what you have at the Lord's table because he's not saying anything about that. He's just saying, listen, you're going to solve this problem. Okay, You're going to segue into the Lord's table correctly. Just reminds of the Lord's tables for all members, rich or poor, slave or free. It's focused on remembering Jesus because he did all he did for those who are redeemed. So come there correctly, Paul says. Remember, everything that I've said, okay, I'm not going to go through it all again. Paul says, just, just this. Wait for each other. If anybody's hungry, eat at home. Okay, don't come to the, the meal and just gobble up your own food and do your own thing with your own schism, whatever. And then you think you can come in and have fellowship one with another. Listen, eat at home. No problem. So you won't come together for judgment. Because that's what's going to happen if you don't fix this. See? If you want to avoid discipline, Paul says, then don't spoil the fellowship. Don't spoil the mutuality. Don't spoil the unity. Don't spoil the true demonstration of the power of the gospel by allowing the love feast to become separated into rich and poor and factions and selfishness and whatever. If you're thinking about others, once again, asking the right questions, waiting on each other, putting each other first, setting aside your differences, Paul says, then you'll be on the right path to avoid taking the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner and then eating and drinking judgment to yourself. And then he says this. There's some other things he needs to talk about with them. And so he says, in closing, the remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So there's a few other things. He's going to make sure he talks about them when he sees them. And he closes this instruction out. These are the things, beloved. This is the standard instructions that the Holy Spirit has for the church in Corinth and for the modern church. The principles here are not put forth for the church to accept them or reject them. Okay? In coming together, believers are to correctly evaluate their actions, ask the right questions because God expects discernment and the absence of those things he will within his rights as a creator, a sovereign Lord and loving Father, discipline his children as he sees fit to produce the wonderful fruits of righteousness. Okay? That's Paul's word to us today. 
Holy Spirit will apply that as he sees fit. Let's close in prayer, if you would. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful today for our time together. Grateful for your son, Jesus, who you sent to be the propitiation for our sin, the satisfaction. We thank you for our salvation. If we have come to know him in faith, then we have a mutual salvation that we celebrate at the Lord's table, that we celebrate in fellowship. We rejoice in those things, Father. We're grateful for them, for the benefit that you have brought to us that we did not deserve, for the security we have for eternity, for the hope that we have that this body that gives us so much trouble now will someday be changed. And we rejoice in all of that. In the midst of this instruction, some of it difficult, some of it very pointed, some of it perhaps revealing, all meant to be curative of the problem here in Corinth and certainly as the problems crop up inside the New Testament church today. We thank you for them because you're a God who loves us and you've given us your will and your word so that we might be fruitful and we might make your son look awesome and that we might prosper in the ministries that you've given us. That the fruit may be born. The gospel may go out. It's the true gospel. One that shows a common redemption that changes us from selfish, self-centered, egotistical people into the image of Christ in our mind like the one that was in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your work by the Holy Spirit. Thank you this morning for baptism. Thank you for tonight for another one. Those who are following you in obedience. Lord, I pray that we'll be a church known by that. Thank you again, Father, for this time of singing and praise to you through music. Thank you for the time of reading the word publicly, as Paul told us to do, where we can worship you and honor you for your authority in our lives and for what you've done and how you've created everything. Thank you, Father, for a time we could worship you with what we have and what you've given us and material things. Really showing in that worship that we know everything comes from you and you own it all. And thank you for your time that we could spend together in your word as we it takes us apart and puts us back together and reveals the faulty pieces and then puts the correct ones in. And for prayer, Father, that where we can really submit ourselves to you, recognizing you're the authority in our life. You are the one who we adore. You're the one who we submit to. We bow our heads, our hearts. If we could even lay before you, we would, Father, because you are the authority. Your word is the word for us, and we live by that. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.